Welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Seaman, Rector of St. Theodore and St. Tyler's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and Chaplain to Orthodox Christians at Cardiff University. My jurisdiction is the Archdiocese of Russian Orthodox Churches in Western Europe, based in Paris, and I serve under Metropolitan Jean of Dubnac. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions both now and for future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. Welcome back to Under My Roof. Today, I am talking with Aidan Hart, who has uh, graciously consented to to join me once again. Listeners will remember that uh, he was with me a few weeks ago when we were also joined by Jonathan Pajot, and we spoke about uh, such things as threshold art and and, uh, the way in which uh, art informs faith. Tonight, we'll be talking more about uh, icons and and other things as they relate to that great question in orthodoxy. But uh, Aidan, first of all, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being with me tonight. Thank you, Father Jacob. I'll begin, though, by throwing an idea at you. Uh, Glenn Cavaliero, in his book, Charles Williams, The Poet of Theology, describes Williams as setting poets on par, really, with biblical writers. He would uh, nuance that, of course. But in this respect, I remember reading somewhere that William said only poets and theologians understand everything and only poets can express it. Now, whether that quote is entirely accurate or not, I know that it is emblematic of, of his thought. And I wonder if you as an Orthodox artist can relate to it at all as an idea. Well, it's a big one. Um, of course, we've got to not necessarily define that describe what we mean by words. The word poet comes from BC to create, to make, and originally came from the one who um, wrote the um, the words, which would then be danced, as it were, in, in Greek um, plays, performances. But to me, the essence of poetry, as we now understand it in the work of a poet, is to communicate content, but in a form that actually transforms us. So it's a union of content and a musicality so that even if you heard a poem expressed in a language you didn't understand, it, it would touch you profoundly. Um, as with music, if you didn't know that Vivaldi's Four Seasons was called that, you could probably guess it was the Four Seasons. So um, so in that sense, I think the po- true poetry, and it's very really difficult, I think, to write true poetry, it's incredibly powerful because it creates a different way of seeing as well as communicating content um, so in that sense, I think a true poet uh, is, is at that high level. And I noticed this in Russia, when I visited Russia, people be reading poems in the underground in the way that we'd be reading newspapers. You know, for them, it, especially during the uh, communist period, it, it was the one gleam of beauty that they're allowed to be exposed to with all the dreariness above ground. Right. That are the first thoughts that I have. It's a very rich scene you've opened up then, but I don't want to... Go on too much about it. When I was preparing that question, I was just uh, I was thinking about the work that you undertake as as an iconographer, but also as an artist more broadly, as somebody interested uh, very deeply in 
in the aesthetics of of the church and therefore sort of a transcendent aesthetic and how that communicates a sense of faith i mean we all know that um when a person experiences orthodoxy perhaps for the first time and they walk across the threshold from street into narthex from narthex into nave they're often very overwhelmed they're 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 very struck with that the visual sense that transports them from the mundanity of life on the pavement to um to an uh, to a sort of life in the divine realm mm. and in many ways i at least I always had a sense when um I was reading Charles Williams that that's what he was about. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you read his novels uh, and and essays and other things, his prime concern was um, drawing a person into uh, you know that which we do not normally see. Exactly. And, and so that's uh, the way I was. Thinking. And I think a fundamental of truth occurs to me more and more that we act according to how we see. If our actions are wrong, if a culture's actions are destructive, so ecological crisis, what we need to do is not address that as fundamental, but as a sign of a wrong way of seeing. So ecological disaster is a result of treating the world as inanimate matter, as a bank full of money, which I can draw on as I wish. Whereas for Christian, it's a theophany, it's a revelation of God. It's a, as we'll discuss perhaps later, it, it's it's a a book of raw material, and God has given us these words and this dictionary of raw words for us to create something that's even more beautiful. Um, So there, wrong vision has led to wrong action. Um, So I think um, iconography is very powerful. And when I talk about iconography, I'm not just talking about panel icons. I'm talking about the whole liturgical visual art. What's to me so powerful about it is that the subject matter is true, a face of a saint, a feast of, of of the church, the crucifixion, the resurrection, but it's also the way that those things are depicted, which transforms the way we see. Even if someone doesn't understand um, initially the content of that festal icon, just the way it's painted throws you off balance a bit. You know, the perspective systems are written a bit about about this. Mm-hmm. The approximately six different perspective systems used. Funnily enough, um, I was just talking to my students. I've just come from teaching my Prince's Foundation School of Traditional Arts icon students. And this morning we were talking about tradition and beauty. And one of my questions was, are there different types of beauty? And are there some types of beauty that draws closer to God and others are pseudo-beauty that titillate us but don't actually transform us? So we concluded that there's some beauty that, as you're saying, is a bit awe-inspiring and challenging and disorienting initially because it challenged us to see in a different way. So I think in, in great art, it's not just the what, but the how that profoundly affects us. Thank you. Um, now, I had proposed to you that we would look at um, sort of the role of iconographer as uh, participating in the priesthood. And I'm going to come on to that in a moment. But in response, you mentioned to me the idea of the prophetic and royal elements that are expressed in the ministry of iconography. And mm-hmm. I wondered what you meant by that exactly. Yes, we tend to think of the prophet primarily as one who declares the word of the Lord, which is obviously the most uh, overt expression of the role of a prophet. But the prophet primarily, I believe, is one who sees and hears the word of the Lord first. And after that, he or she will speak. Um, so... 
an iconographer before they start painting has got to see the world as the way the church does so we depict the world transfigured we depict saints not just in the art of visage but as compassionate people and people with insight etc um so a good iconographer has got to live the life of the church as as i said to my students this morning you've got to have the music of heaven in your soul so when one is painting or carving or embroidering whatever your iconography work is you probably make a thousand decisions in, in the space of making that icon little decisions what color what form shall i put the stroke there or there and unless one has that music of heaven in one's soul you haven't got any canon any rule any means of choosing this rather than that so um the icon is an object is the spoken as it were word of god that expressed in color but to do that you've got to be a listener and a seer first and of course that's one of the alternative names for prophet in the old testament a seer a seer one sees so i think iconography is prophetical in that sense and it should as we've discussed already um help us to see differently so I, I always return to the burning bush that I think it wasn't so much that Moses saw a bush that suddenly caught a light as it were in a sense the bush had always been burning with divine fire and his eyes were open to see it so when the disciples saw Christ transfigured I think in fact it was more the disciples who were transfigured than Christ in the sense that their eyes were open to see him as he always had been right. so in the way an icon is, is painted can help other people see and be prophets themselves in that sense um and the and the the royal task we tend to think of a ruler as someone with power over and of course that's true to an extent they have an authority but the role of an artist is to have authority over the pigments over the wood or the stone whatever they're doing not to subjugate it but the opposite mm -hmm. to raise it up so in a sense a conductor uh, is master of the orchestra but why so to, to bring them together to a higher place so again I think um our ecological disaster is largely because going back to its Protestant roots and I think it goes back to Protestant roots it's understood our dominion over the earth to sort of use the earth as we wish whereas I've always understood um uh the, the, the Genesis text as I've given you mastery so that you can transform the wild world into a garden I've given you mastery so you can turn stones into temples as the poet has mastery over words to make the words even more articulate so I think the particular role of an artist iconographer is uh, indicative of the role that all of us have whatever our, our particular work is to, yeah. to, to transfigure by using our mastery to raise things to a more articulate level that is not something I would have guessed when I was sort of deciphering that uh, correspondence between us earlier. It's magnificent, and it touches on so many um, sort of additional questions, even uh, as you've already mentioned, the ecological. That would be of, of immense uh, interest to me. Most of us, though, are familiar with the idea of the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. And I've often thought, especially in the Orthodox context, that the artist, especially the iconographer, is a priest most akin to the one standing on the altar uh, as he makes the immaterial known in the material the unseen known through the scene in light of what you've just said is this something that you would agree with yes I, I to answer that could I ask 
you to expand what you think a priest is, because I think there are some misconceptions about the role of the priest on the highest level, you know, to, to give, yeah, I mean, you, you've already alluded to it there, to make the invisible visible, as it were, through the, the material. And then I can answer you how I think an iconographer does it. So could you elucidate for me a bit more what you think the role of a liturgical priest is? Certainly. Um, I mean, obviously, there is the prophetic role that we've just talked about, the, you know, that of, of uh, both representing uh, the cosmos to the creator, the creator mm -hmm. back to the cosmos. But uh, there is also the particular um, liturgical <clears throat> role of working with uh, common elements mm -hmm. and and uh, you know, offering the appropriate uh, prayers, the ritual over them in order that they might then be manifest um, mm -hmm. as uh, that which they are, the body and blood of Christ for the mm -hmm. people. So... Um, I suppose I think of the liturgical priest as the conveyor of that which is mystically and eternally true um, mm -hmm. through material. Yes, what's interesting about uh, your description is that when you perform the liturgy as a priest, you kind of sort of make up all your own words. So in that sense, you're working within a tradition, yet something mystical happens, something that's beyond as words happens that bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. And by that sense, I suppose the icon tradition is similar. The plenty, there's plenty of diversity within the tradition that, as I say to my students, you know, you're there as a door maker to make a door between heaven and earth, and then you get out of the way. And so we've got to be very careful of our function and measure everything against that function, which is to make physical objects um, through which people encounter God and his, and, and his saints. Um, and I suppose also there's the, <clears throat> the Eucharistic role of giving thanks, of being the focus. Um, everyone brings a bread and wine, and then it ends up in the priest's hands, and he raises it up. That's why I just absolutely love that mosaic in the apps of Santa Polinari in class in Ravenna. Have you yeah. been there? Yep. Remarkable, yep. isn't it? Yeah. It it's, that says everything to me. You've got this paradisical garden. Um, and then you've got the priest, St. Apollinari, with his hands raised. Um, and then below, you've got the mosaic of other bishops. And then below that, you've got the actual altar, where there'd be a, a daily liturgy. So I suppose the role of um, an iconographer is similar to the priest in that we gather together representatives of the whole of material creation. So the pigment comes from the mineral kingdom. The wooden panel comes from the vegetable kingdom. And the egg that binds the pigment is from the animal kingdom. And then we can say we have the goal, which represents the Holy Spirit, as it were, the, the divine light. So through me as an iconographer representing um, all humans, these good things become very good. I, I love the quote of Leontius of Cyprus, who says, um, um, heaven and earth, sorry, uh, stars and sun do not praise God of themselves, but through me, the sun and the moon praise God. Um, so we we become the the mouthpiece, as it were. I think I think creation can praise God, but it can't give thanks to God without us. So I disagree a little bit beyond us on that. I think they do praise God directly, but they, they can't give thanks. So we are the mouthpiece. Um, so an iconographer is not just making an object which will then be used for prayer, but the making of that object itself is prayer. I believe I'm painting um, with color, but in fact I'm praying with color as well. Wonderful. 
So is the work of the iconographer radically different to the work of other artists? I mean, I know this might be an amusing example to to some, but um, as I think I've told you before, I was visiting Montreal Art Gallery a number of years ago, and I came across a huge Bougereau painting uh, of an older girl brushing the hair of a younger girl, and it utterly stopped me in my tracks. I was enthralled. Um, I could have stared at it for hours because the piece seemed to exude some kind of living power. Now, that particular work was about nothing overtly transcendent. At the same time, I've also been in the college uh, and in Keeble College in Oxford, where I've seen uh, William Holman Hunt's original of The Light of the World, which, of course, is about something transcendent in, in an overt way. How do these paintings or any other great works, whatever their, their theme, relate to icons? Is it safe to think of such artists as priests or at least priests of a sort? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I coined this term threshold art. Uh, so you, you've got what you might call liturgical art, art of the altar. You know, they're obviously uh, Christian art, iconography, church chanting, etc. Um, and then you've got your demonic art, you know, on the other extreme. Mm. But we, we have art that's created by people that may be believers, may not be, but, you know, who've got a good compassionate soul. Um, even if they depict human suffering and anguish, but do it with compassion. This sort of work has the seed of God hidden in it. And we must admit that there are many people in the world who have had bad experiences of the Christian faith. So when they're struggling, their first port of call is not going to be to go to the church. But they can be touched by these um, seeds of compassion. It might be in a Bojo painting, it might be in a piece of secular music, inverted commas, but it contains something of the divine, something of beauty, something of passion, of understanding. That's what I call threshold art. And um, the man who baptized me, Orthodox, um, he became Christian, well, became Orthodox. I think he'd been a sort of lapsed Catholic, I think, I'm not sure, through Dostoevsky. He studied uh, Russian literature. So Dostoevsky for him was a threshold, as it were. For me, it was in part Vancouzi, um, Constantine Vancouzi, and also certain elements of old Egyptian art. I was a full-time sculptor and a, a Christian, a devout Anglican, seeking art that would help me to depict the spiritual as well as the, the outer element of the human person. So I was looking for art that would help me to do that. And um, I came across various types of art that were, um, looking back, most, most of them actually liturgical in one sense and the other, in the sense that an African mask was actually used in a dance, it wasn't just made to go in a wall. Uh, even Bancucci's stuff that was made for art galleries, but in fact, a lot of that came from the uh, Romanian tradition. Apparently, the Indus Column and most of his repetitive wooden um, works were inspired by funerary columns that are carved in Romania um, to go over tombs. And a Romanian friend in the church told me the other day that the height of them related to their age <laughs> when they died. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think um, good is good, whoever speaks it, and wherever it comes from. Um, truth is truth, wherever it comes from. Well, as you know, I sort of, you know, I, I share that opinion instinctively. Um, the the importance of what I've now learned is threshold art has, has been um, immense in my own experience. And... Uh, find that very often when I'm in conversation with inquirers, um, it's reference to sort of threshold art that 
builds a certain understanding, I think, as, as they move forward in their understanding of faith. And uh, I guess in terms of the two examples I cited, the Bougereau on one hand and the Hunt on the other, um, it wouldn't be, the, 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 the way in which they're pointing would not be obvious. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be immediately obvious. And uh, I think it's worth sort of listeners uh, catching the fact that in fact, that in, 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 in actuality, they um, you know, ultimately somehow point in the same direction, even if they're, they're way markers that are further from the end goal, if that makes any sense at all. Mm. I think we need to understand art in terms of its function. I've been watching um, a documentary about Andy Warhol, mm. not a particularly pleasant individual, um, but always felt there's a certain important role that his work played, particularly in American culture. And I, it just occurred to me that he was a mirror. He didn't act, offer much that was transfiguring, but basically turned a mirror to American culture and said, this is what you are. You're consuming society. Everything is there to be consumed. Mm. It's a shocking fact, but perhaps that's the first stage of, of repentance, just to have a mirror. Right. Uh, a saintly person would give a mirror and also they'd give inspiration and the way forward. Um, so I think uh, a painter, like Bougereau, who paints primarily, I suppose, for exhibitions, the salon exhibitions, whatever, he's, got a, he's aiming for a certain audience, for a certain effect, um, other artists to be aiming for other effects. So I think some people would judge everything in the light of the icon, but I think that's, that's wrong because the icon has a very specific function. Um, Sometimes I'm commissioned to do portrait sculptures. So it's not made for church, but I'm influenced profoundly, of course, by my worldview as an iconographer. But it's a different function, so I approach it in a different way. Now, I was reading the section of the uh, British Association of Iconographers website on uh, what is iconography. And while clearly it's an accurate description of the ways in which iconography is deployed in the Orthodox tradition, I couldn't help but think sometimes it feels as if our words constrain, our words constrain icons, as if they're cast in a sort of pious mold, when in fact they carry a much greater potency. I was going to say, am I wrong? But you're nodding. What do you think of that uh, sentence? Or what do you think? Yes, I've never been happy with the phrase, icons are not art. Mm. Yeah, I, I think they are art, they're more than art, but they're at least art. I think this wrong conception um, has led to a lot of laziness in iconography. I've had some really gifted artists come, and when they come to iconography, they're completely flummoxed. Yeah, they really want to learn it, but they realize actually this is, um, it is art, but it's more than that as well. So I think that's one mistake that some writing about iconography makes. It tries to make itself so, so distinct from the rest of the bad world. Right. Um, so that's wrong. But yes, I think um, words can help iconography. Uh, I've just published this book, Festal Icons, History and Meaning. One of the reasons for that was to show that the icon tradition isn't stilted, it isn't um, frozen. So to me, the main part of the book is the development of the icon of that particular feast, how much it's changed and transformed and reflected and adapted to pastoral theological needs of the time. So I wanted to show that condition is, is alive. So hopefully words then can, instead of stultifying and limiting, can open up um, our perception of uh, 
liturgical hours. And, and one point, I think it's important to make that Christ didn't come to make us religious people. He came to make us true human beings, full human beings. I remember a convert priest with some of his parishioners or converts visited me once and um, they're going about orthodoxy this and orthodoxy that and orthodoxy this. And I said, just forget about orthodoxy. Yeah, Christ didn't come to make you good orthodox. He came to make a radiant, transfigured human being. We have these terms orthodoxy and blah, 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 only to differentiate from things that aren't so full. But you know, God didn't come to make you an oxyonism. Father Vesalius, the abbot of Vieron Monastery, where I was for some time, he used to say, I'm orthodox because orthodoxy takes me beyond orthodoxy. It's not a system. It's not an ism. It's always breaking boundaries, always going from glory to glory. Now, in terms of the way we use icons, not just the way we think about them, it seems that if icons really are what they say they are, what so, sorry, if they are what we say they are, mm -hmm. um, then the idea of being surrounded by these proverbial windows into heaven um, should be a transformative experience. And yet we Orthodox, even when we venerate them, can sometimes seem to carry on as if they were nothing more than religious prints. And I use that word quite deliberately um, because it seems uh, that prints carry less power than originals, for example. Are we doing them a disservice, do you think? Or is their power communicated more as part of a collected religious life? In, in other words, is that which they communicate best or is it that they communicate best as part of a whole Orthodox life in which, for example, the Eucharist and the prayers of the church are an intrinsic part? Or are they, I mean, is it okay that we sort of um, treat them, you know, the way we treat the prints on my wall around me right now? I think they connect both ways. Of course, in the fullness, they operate in that first option you gave within the whole symphony of, of worship. And I'm really keen not just to talk about icons as panels, as I was saying, but mm -hmm. all the visual expressions of liturgy, which includes wall paintings, the furnishings, the way uh, we treat light. I'm very interested in the effect of light um, in churches. We just assume we've got to have lots of light, but having lived in monasteries for a long time, um, the lack of light actually creates a much different inner state. Mm. Um, just having pinpoint light above icons. So when you walk in, you're not so much aware of the architecture flooded with the light everywhere. You're aware of the, the saints' faces because that's where the light is, that little lamp in front of the saints' face. And then with time, you adapt, your eyes adapt, and you see more and more. So it's a gradual unveiling. Um, so I think um, the visual liturgical arts certainly find their ultimate home in, in, in the worship, the liturgy, where all these different aspects, the word, the image, smell, touch, all come together. But I think icons um, yeah, have a life of their own as well. Some people don't think we should have exhibitions of icons, and I can quite understand why they say that. They've been taken out of the context, but they're acting like a missionary. You know, They're going out into the world, and though they're separate from the normal context, they have a great power in themselves. Um, my first encounter with, with orthodoxy was for an icon exhibition at the Auckland City Art Gallery. Um, funny enough, 40 years later, almost to the year, I was invited back to that gallery because they had another exhibition icon there to give talks. <laughs> it's really cyclical for me. But it's interesting, though, this exhibition, the man who did all the design, um, 
studied and might have actually gone to Europe to look at frescoed Orthodox churches. And the, the wall colors he chose just immediately created a liturgical atmosphere. Now, the deep, deep blue blacks and, and deep sort of red ochres. So it is possible, having an icon being taken out of its context, to have a real threshold <laughs> a role, you know, going out to people and meeting them where they are. People only go to galleries, people take galleries like churches, you know, holy places. You don't shout and jump around. You know, you, it's a certain sobriety, isn't there? Right. So um, about prints, I think, obviously, it's better to have um, uh, hand-painted hand icons. But if you've got a patron saint um, and you can't afford an original initially, better to have something than nothing. But don't consider it the norm, but at least a, a move toward the norm. Right. Yeah, no, I was just, uh, you know, when it comes to, I didn't use the word sacramental, but when it comes to the the sacramental nature of the icon, uh, which is what was on my mind when I was uh, thinking through that question, um, I was comparing it in, um, to our participation in in the Eucharist. And I was actually explaining to uh, a catechumen of mine that you know when it comes time to finally receive the Eucharist, it may well be a very dramatic uh, experience that um, he that he um, goes through intellectually, but it won't necessarily be so mm -hmm. because there is a sense in which um, if we receive regularly across the course of our lives, there are times when it will feel quite dramatic. It will touch a particular need within us. There are other times when it's going to, we will recognize what it is, but it will not carry the same kind of potency in terms of our, our reception. And it seems to me that uh, just as the Eucharist through all of those um, uh, ebbs and uh, through all of that ebb and flow of, of our sort of mental state as we approach it um icons kind of fit into a picture which is uh very similar in the sense that we go into a church and we won't always perceive we won't always feel and and sometimes we will and mm -hmm. and the icon is part of it you've used the word symphony it's part of that symphony um that that enables that and it's uh, that um to a lot to them sort of a dramatic sacramental power on their own is almost a superstitious act as a, yeah. you know, because it, it removes them from from that which they are which is um sort of a chord within a, a much bigger uh, movement or a chord within a symphony so to speak exactly no i agree entirely and in fact the defenders of the icons in the iconoclastic period were emphatic that icons weren't sacraments um, you know, that they, they existed within a liturgical context and had a particular role. St. Don of Damascus did talk about the grace-bearing property of an icon, but it's not a sacrament. A sacrament has a change of nature, but there's no change of nature in the icon. Um, yeah, no, it, it, you know, there's nothing magical about it, but sometimes I'm afraid we do descend to magic, which is sort of debased true faith. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on a slightly different note, can you talk a bit about the anointing screens you designed for King Charles's coronation? Perhaps mm. just run us through the process. Mm. The anointing itself, although we couldn't see it, obviously, when we were watching uh, watching on our televisions, I found to be a most astounding part of the of the rite. 
um, the king was stripped down to that simple linen shift before his anointing, while the choir sang Zadok the priest, an act, of course, that deliberately evoked the anointing of Solomon in the presence of Zadok, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the warrior. Um, he had oil placed on him by the bishop before being vested in the vestments of all three offices. So I guess I'm wondering, what what did the king ask for? And what did you end up doing by way of symbols? What did you hope to evoke? Or were you um, simply working to a specific remit? How did the screens relate to the action? So I guess there's a whole bunch of questions there. <laughs> if we uh, just start with the most practical, um, what did the king ask for? And, and what did you do by way of, you know, sort of thinking, uh, thinking through that um, Yes, well, I've done a lot of work for the king in the past, sort of mostly related, not all, though, to iconography. So um, I got a call from Sir Clive Alderton, his chief private secretary, saying that the king wanted you to design the screen because he wanted something iconographic. You know, he wanted something that uh, expressed the spiritual power of the anointing. And iconography is sort of known to join those visual and the spiritual together. And he asked if I could base the theme, not the design, but the theme on a stained glass window at the Chapel Royal at St. James Palace, okay. which is basically a tree um, uh, with the names of Commonwealth countries on, and it's a ray of light above and angels and the four evangelists. That, that was it. So uh, not a particularly attractive design in itself, I thought, the window, but that, that was the theme, a tree representing the Commonwealth. Um, but in the context of, of uh, divine light coming from heaven. So um, I got some ideas from all sorts of different sources. Um, well, I had to guess the size of it first. Um, no one really knew how big it had to be, so I guessed the size. And um, for my sort of visual library of, of things, I came up with, recalled some mosaics of trees, which gave me that sort of three-leaf clover effect. Um, so it didn't take long to come up with the basic design. And then um, there was a lot of conversation going between the, the King and I through Sir Clive. And um, we wanted something that reflected really overtly uh, Solomon's anointing. So in fact, my second phase of my design had the anointing of Solomon um, in, inside by Zadok the priest. But for various reasons, that had to be dropped, unfortunately. So I replaced that with crosses which were inspired by the um, Cosmati pavement from which the anointing was performed, which is an amazing work in its own right. So um, ultimately, I wanted all sorts of things to be combined in the tree. I had the, the ray coming from, it's actually three rays. So in Orthodox theology, though a particular act might be primarily one of the persons of the Trinity, all three always involved. So it was one yet three. And the anointing is primarily the Holy Spirit, but of course the Father and the Son are present. The tree evokes, of course, the tree of life, the, the tree of death, um, because in, in Greek the cross is also called xylo, which means tree in wood. Um, so you've got sacrifice, but life at the same time. Um, you have the names of the now 56 Commonwealth countries there. And at each one, each leaf is different. So I wanted to show unity and diversity. All along, I suppose, the theology of the Trinity was in the back of my mind. Three distinct persons, yet one. So the three lobes to the tree, yet one. Each of those leaves a different shape. Obviously, they have a different name on, but yet they're one within the whole. Um, 
I do a certain Celtic element, so the branches are interweaving, they're weaving in and out. There are birds there, and I wanted to show that um, within tradition, which represents continuity and that sense unchangingness, there's a lot of life. So Christ talked about the mustard seed growing and then tree, uh, then birds fly in the trees. So you've got movement within the stasis. So I wanted to show again the, um, the tension or not the union of, of, of two apparent opposites, stasis and movement. Um, and then uh, the two angels, they're rejoicing to show again that any liturgy on earth um, is a participation in the liturgy in heaven. So the, the angels are there with the trumpets. And it's all rooted in, in the earth. Um, but the, the king's cipher um, is in the bottom of the tree. Now, now, the king is anointed to serve everything above. He's not anointed to cut down the tree and subjugate it. He's there to serve. And then along the bottom, of course, you've got the, uh, the quote of Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So it sort of grew, um, but most of it was done quite quickly. Um, and then there's a sort of a dialogue to fine tune. And then all sorts of other things, how to use it, exact size, all sorts of other things, but that, that's the basis of it. Wonderful. You really were then um, evoking something that we've already talked about in terms of that sort of um, uh, royal um, idea of the, the role of the, uh, of the iconographer, uh, mm. the, the uh, prophetic and royal, um, you know, that idea of, of uh, not subjection, but but rather elevation mm -hmm. in, in terms of your your symbols. So that was something uh, that was not present in the window, uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of you know, what you were adding into it. If it was, it was pretty hidden. I think yeah. <laughs> Even that was yeah permanently in a church. Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, it was a source of immense joy for me to see those come out. Um, the, the coronation, as I say, most particularly the uh, anointing and the vesting was uh, unlike anything. Uh, certainly I've been to uh, Charlemagne's chapel in Aachen and uh, there's that relationship that uh, Charlemagne very wonderfully evoked between um, the seat of the uh, emperor and the uh, the image of, of uh, Christ the Pantocrator um, in, in relation to it. And uh, and of course, um, you know the the whole theology um, evoked by uh, Charlemagne, or sorry, um, Constantine's relation to the Church, and and uh, that question that runs through really the entirety of Christian history from from Constantine to the present. Um, but I thought it was sympathetically and and wonderfully evoked. So no, it was a it was a, a moment of immense joy for me. So I can express my congratulations on this more than my part. Yeah. And it's communal, the actual making of it was communal. There were about 150 people involved. And right. well, I had oversight over the general design. I wanted to fine tune in relation with the hand embroiderers. Some of it was machine embroidered because we didn't have so much time. Right. But I, I, I said, especially with the birds, I said to the embroiderers, look, I want the stitching to speak for itself. I don't want your stitching to look like a painting. Mm. I want it to be an embroidered bird rather than a painted bird that happens to be made in embroidery. So I, I gave them the general ethos I wanted and had them come up with some samples. And um, so I said, oh, that works really well. Let's combine it with that. So it, it was a synergy. The actual making of it was a synergy. It wasn't just top down. So 
we wanted the materials as well. The materials were either very local or part of the Commonwealth. Um, so the felt which formed the backing for most of the work was woven in this country, but wool from New Zealand and, and Australia. So it's nice when the making can express the, the theme as well. Um, what will it's, it's going to be on display at Buckingham Palace until about September, October. Okay. Um, I'm hoping it can have a an afterlife. Eventually, it's going to go to the London Museum, Museum of London, when that has uh, been finished. It's being restored at the moment. But I'm I'm hoping it can be used sometimes in the Commonwealth services, which happen once a year. That's my own idea. I'm going to try to see if the king can promote that idea. So it's used liturgically, in other words, not just now frozen right. and preserved in aspect. I would look forward to, to seeing it in further use. Hmm. Um, we've talked about sort of, uh, well, we've we've asked or explored a number of questions. They've all largely been on sort of a single theme. Is there anything else that you would like to raise or is there something that's on your mind or heart that uh, you would you would like to discuss or talk about? Thank you. Um, Two things, I think. I've realized how liturgical art is a, is a real speciality, um, and we need to improve our training. I mean, I'm I'm just astounded visiting both Orthodox seminaries. I was speaking at St. Redeemer's recently, also through what's called the Chichester Workshop of Liturgical Art, founded through Chichester Cathedral. Uh, as far as I know, no Anglican or Catholic seminaries um, or training centers, because there are not so many seminaries, it's all done virtually online these days, mm. have any uh, mandatory course on liturgical art. I just find that astounding. So I think I would like to see more serious training um, or top-up training in the case of Arctic, architects, for example, and the particular needs of liturgical art. And secondly, to have future commissioners, which are basically the priests, be much more educated what liturgical art is for and therefore how to brief. Um, I've been involved sometimes as a consultant to churches that have been done up and often the fault is with the brief the, the priest or the bishop just doesn't really know what they want the end result to be so they give a lot of freedom to the poor architect who might be a brilliant architect but doesn't know much about liturgy or orthodox worship or whatever so they're left floundering a bit um so i, I would really I'd like to see a much more serious um uh, energy to go into tr to training both liturgical artists and 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 priests in in, in the importance and, and and how to commission work. Yeah. So we talk about future generations here. Yeah, I mean to me that's extremely um, interesting. I mean, I myself had the good fortune of of a certain kind of training that included a great deal of conversation around aesthetic. Of course, my training was Western, and therefore it applied to that context. But what it did do was ignite an awareness of, of its importance when I moved east finally and, and found my home in the Orthodox Church. Um, so while I find uh, I would always want to consult, um, I've at least got um, the seeds of instinct there that, that would um, force me to ask those questions. Um, I wondered that, though, what you think of, for example, some of the historic churches. I mean, if you go around Eastern Europe, and I'm thinking particularly the Slavic countries, uh, or the Carpathians, for example, where you get these log churches that are a few hundred years old. They're, they're built sort of and, and appointed on sort of a, uh, you know, on sort of a folk basis. And, and um, 
they're not going to obviously follow uh, formal um, sense, and yet they they convey, you know, real you know sense of beauty, wonder, um, appropriateness for for liturgical worship. Um, have they just achieved that by instinct, or has the worldview of those of us undertaking new projects changed significantly so that we've forgotten some of the wisdom, or or is it actually not there and it was simply good fortune in the in the older churches i think you put your finger on it but i think when you're raised in a culture that has been theocentric you know for centuries as father vasilius often said at the Veron monastery there are epochs where it's difficult to get things wrong mm. <laughs> there are epochs where it's difficult to get things right um and we're in the latter um it's not to denigrate it it's just the way it is because as we sever ourselves from God as a culture, um, uh, religious symbolism to create profound works of spiritual insight, it's like learning a second language. Uh, whereas these people, unlettered, unlearned, inverted commas, they've been soaked in, um, even if even it's through the ritual, the ritual has a profound effect on your soul and you, and you just naturally choose the right thing. Um, so I'm looking forward to the time when, when we converts in the West are just so immersed through uh, generations that, that it's difficult to get it wrong. Um, we've got to put a lot of effort in to sort of readjust our thinking. Not that we're all bad. I think we can revive a lot of wonderful Western things. I just love Romanesque work. And whenever I design anything for, for Western church or a Western, uh, Western saint, for example, I've probably done about 120 Western saints. I'd try as much as possible to draw and everything um, that was good in the West. So uh, I don't want to denigrate our 21st century, but I, I just love that sort of folk art that has a profound authenticity about it because it's almost unconscious. You know, it's, it's just, just it's a way they see life. So, that, so they paint life like children paint a big head on their mother and father as the face is the most important thing. They don't think about it, um, but that's just the way they experience life. So that's how they paint it. This has been wonderful, and I want to thank you again for being with me, and uh, I hope that we can carry on conversation uh, well into the future, and um, yeah, just uh, I, I look forward to speaking again. Thank you so much for the time with you, Father Jacob. It's always it's a very stimulating and a joy, and I feel at least I'll be digging deeper into things. Good, thank you. Pray for me. Good blessing. You've been listening to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast with me, Father Jacob Siemens. If you have enjoyed this episode and wish to support me and my parish, please be sure to tune in regularly. Also, please visit me at coffee.com slash priestjacob and consider buying me a coffee. That's coffee.com slash priestjacob, K-O-F-I.com forward slash priestjacob, all one word. Thank you and God bless you.